2: I found this whole exercise very instructive, and, and the main thing I learned is that, like, at least 25% of our audience is made up of sadists.
3: Musky so
1: aggressive, they attack your trolling mode. Little cherry garlic hot dog, and it's on. Pike are kind of squirrely, It's and it's not the big ones, it's the small ones that you have to watch out for. It
3: took 20 tries for him to finally pop the hook through. But we're 65 off, what choice do I have, you know? <laughs> Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that won't turn ghost white or throw up at subway tuna when you bury a 4-0 treble hook in the meat of your hand. I'm Joe Sormelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and I have seen grown men, though never women, mm. reduced
2: to quivering sacks of fear <laughs> and shock at the sight of just a little metal cylinder disappearing into flesh.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'll give I tell you what, you're right about women too. They handle that they much can. better. They're much better, though there was this one time I asked my wife to grab a rod out of my roof rack, and she put a tog hook in her arm, and Ooh. she cried and screamed obscenities at me. But <laughs> but that was just that one time. Uh, to your point, though, it is interesting that the hook doesn't even have to be in that person's flesh, right? Yep. Like, I've seen people nearly pass out at the sight of someone else. Like catching a hook deep. Yeah. So and and so quick disclaimer, because we're already going there. Uh, <laughs> if you're one of those people who get squeamish about hooks and body parts, you might wanna you might want to skip this episode. Yeah. We hope you don't, but you might consider. But, but
2: it. we want to give you the option so we don't just right. make you miserable the whole time. Yeah. Cause yeah. we're we're going straight to the shank for the Ooh. next hour or so. I've got a handful of really good hook stories that I've collected over the years, both removing hooks from other people and from myself. But one happened just a few weeks ago, and that's that's what inspired this week's theme.
3: Yeah, story time with Miles. Phil, mm-hmm. I, feel, I, I feel like we need like we need to make an intro for these at some point. Ooh, I like that. But if you do that, I vote that we should integrate
2: some kind of clip from Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. Hello, boys and girls.
3: Oh, pff, 100, 100%, man. <laughs> Eddie Murphy was genius on SNL. He I mean, was. A, a, a little, a little Richard Simmons. Come on. Classic. Anyway. Classic. Anyway, back to your story. No, we're not talking Eddie Murphy. No, no. Uh, so I
2: recently went to a like a family reunion at my uncle and aunt's place in northern Wisconsin.
1: Mm-hmm. We had
2: three generations, which was nice. It's it, I think ages went from two to seventy-seven. That's a gap. It, it That's was a span. Was, That's a span. It was, it was really nice. The it was your quintessential family week at the lake, right? Water skiing, grilling, cornhole water fights, copious cocktails, lots of laughing. All the, you know what it was? It was all the rich human connection that has been just totally missing for the past 18 months. And we tried to cram it all into one week.
3: (laughs) It's also pretty much everything you see on Charlie Barron's channel, so.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was very much like
3: that. Uh, Who we've been trying to get on this show, Charlie, anytime now. Anytime, anytime. You can come on anytime you want. But
2: the one thing we didn't have enough of, we just ran out of, because we tried to cram it all into one week, was fishing time. So, last day of the trip, half the family's already gone. My two uncles, and and these are the men, I should say, who seeded my love for fishing. These yeah. are the guys who baited hooks and untangled mm-hmm. lines when I was four. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones who nurtured and mentored and just put up with me for decades. Yeah. So, these guys insisted, like, last day, you're about to leave, you're flying out we got to go out for a few hours. And I said, great. So we trail it up and we went over to this lake that used to be one of my father's favorites. And we headed right to the spot where my dad caught his biggest bass ever. And it's the same spot where we later scattered his ashes. So it's, yeah. it's a, it's like a powerful place. Sure. In my family. Sure. And of course, right there, right at that spot, my uncle Jim hooks up. Bam. and It wasn't anything noteworthy, right? It, It was, it was like a half pound large, still felt significant, right? Yeah. Where it was and what we were doing and what was going on. And so I think we experienced like as a boat, this moment of, of profound awe and gratitude. It was, it was one of those, one of those times that brings out spiritual feeling, even if you're not officially spiritual, you just kind of get the, that, that sense inside.
3: Little connection. I know
2: what you're talking about. Yeah. And as I was basking in that sublime glow, this loud, shocked, oh, god damn it, rings out <laughs> from the bow of the boat. <laughs> and I should say that my Uncle Jim is not a man who swears casually. Right. He, he does have quite the arsenal of expletives, but he saves them for very special occasions. So I look up, and I see one of the points of the rear treble... The, on the, the lure that he was using, buried in the index finger of his left hand, right right next to the fingernail bed, which is a very okay. painful place to catch I've, a hook. I've had one there. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the bass, of course, is still pinned on the front treble with two of the hooks. So I grab a set of pliers. I run up. I unhook the bass. I let it go. Jim looks at his finger and says, well, I guess we'll just have to push that through. And hey. and I'll have you cut the hook. Mm. And I'm not a fan of that. No. For the record. No. <laughs> I don't so i say you know uncle jim there's an easier way and this is something i've done many times I, I i can take that hook out i've taken a lot of hooks out of a lot of people and it will hurt much less and though i am a grown man and have made my living in the fishing industry for over a decade in the eyes of my uncles i'm still kind of a kid oh yeah you know it doesn't get that. matter how old With i get certain
3: family members yeah you don't know still yeah. don't know what you're talking about 40 years old you don't know anything
2: nothing yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't say don't think that I know nothing, but they're like, I don't don't know. And because Jim, my old Jim is unfamiliar with this, this tactic for hook removal. So he was skeptical, I think is a good way of putting it. And so I spent 10 minutes explaining what I'm going to do, how it's going to work, how I've done it before. I'm trying to instill confidence. And he finally agrees. All right, go ahead. Give it a shot. So I cut the 80 pound floral bite tippet that I was using off and I, I tie it into a perfection loop and I snug it up to the bend of the hook and I wrap the leader around my hand. Popped it. Everything yep. worked perfectly. Yep, it usually does. Yeah. yeah. Treble backed right out of his ring finger, clean. Went sailing through the air, and I had this moment of relief mixed with pride, having saved the day and proving myself. You know. Yeah. And 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 the fishing trip is is back on, and and then the glorious arc of this treble flying out of his left hand just comes to this sickening stop. somehow, and I really don't know how this happened, my Uncle Jim managed to place his right hand, the other hand, directly in the trajectory of the hook as it was exiting his left. Like I I don't know how this happened. I literally ripped the treble out of his left hand. It flew through the air for several feet and then buried not one,
3: but two points really deep into his right hand. So, I just I just throw in that while like the odds of that happening are slim, that's the kind of thing that that like happens to me so frequently. I would have just been like, "Yeah, that's about right." <laughs> it would have been like, "Yeah, that's perfect." I could yeah. not believe it. <laughs>
2: and it the weird the, so that's already weird, but this is another thing I've never seen before. He he managed to put one hook on the treble into his right forefinger and another hook on the same treble into his right thumb uh. so his hand was like pinned together in this weird creepy claw like maneuver i i've never seen anything like it <laughs> and of course he let out another string of very well earned expletives and then he turned to me and said i really liked your hook removal technique for about a half a second but i'm not so <laughs> sure about it now which was fair yeah <laughs> The, yeah. This technique, which I will explain in detail later in the show, it works great for removing single hooks. I've, I have an excellent track record with one hook, but when you have two barbed hook from the same treble buried in two different fingers on the same hand, that that removal job is just above my pay grade. I don't yeah. know how to do that. So sadly, mm. we had to pull the plug on the fishing trip after one fish, get back to the trailer, take Jim to the ER... Good news, we were all laughing about it by the time we hit the ramp. And my uncles were even willing to let me take a few photos and, and a selfie of the incident, which you can see on my Instagram, if you were into that kind of thing and you're not squeamish about blood.
3: Yeah, we'll throw it up. I'll throw it up in my story this week too. We love a good yeah. we love a good blood shot. Uh, but that look, man, that's a pickle. Okay. I'm thinking as you're telling the story, I'm thinking on that because yes. I'm I'm always trying to avoid leaving the water if possible. Of course. Like that's the last thing you want to do, right? Um, I don't know, it's like, it's hard to say how I would have handled that without being there and seeing it. But I don't know. Like maybe I might've made your uncle suffer through like one line pull and one push through maybe. Oh. I don't know. Like cut, cut off the bend of, of, of one of the points. You know what I mean? To separate it. I don't know. I, it, it's, it's hard to say. It was, it's a tough one. It's a dilly of a pickle. Um, I don't know what I would have done. Just curious. What kind of lure was it? Well, first you were a sadist. <laughs> for just even saying
2: that, uh, but to answer your your question, Hannibal Lecter, it was a full sized Magic Man lipless crankbait from Thirteen Fishing.
3: I'm asking because there's a difference between trying to do it with little trebles on a little something <laughs> versus like trebles on a musky lure. So don't it was call not me a musky, Hannibal Lecter. It was not a
2: musky plug. It was a
3: it was a bass
2: sized yeah lipless crankbait. and a okay. Magic Man from Thirteen Fishing to be specific. There you and go. there are three things that I can absolutely attest to about that bait. Number one, bass do eat it. Yes. I've seen it happen. Number two, the hooks are extremely sharp. Yes. Number three, the barbs hold very well. <laughs> so we are proud to have thirteen fishing sponsor the show. Though, for legal reasons, I I am compelled to tell you that they absolutely do not condone any DIY medical advice we may provide and cannot be held accountable for any injuries you sustain as a result of listening to this show.
3: Yes, yes, don't listen to us, or me at least, Miles is smarter. Uh, But you should always listen to your guide, which uh, is a painful reminder. We're going to drive home with our Smooth Move segment this week. Joining us again, our good buddy from the North, Canada, Jay Siemens.
0: Oh, why did you do that? Why? Did why did the you the do that,
3: Terry? Oh my God. Hanging out with us today
2: for Adult Story Time, we got Jay Siemens. Uh, Jay's a photographer, cinematographer, filmmaker, and former fishing guide at Wollaston Lake Lodge, which, if you don't know, is like Valhalla for big pike fishing. Jay, thanks for coming and making some time, dude. What's good?
1: How are you? We're good. Good. Uh... We still got ice up here. You guys down south are all in the boat already, and we can still oh, be ice fishing for a couple of weeks. That's
3: terrible. I'm wearing shorts, man, in Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> it's,
2: it's uh, yeah. we got open water here now. There's not much ice left. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that a lot of people know you're responsible for this, but you made a film a few years ago called Common Thread that I, I really enjoyed. And I'm just curious, man, Like, where did that project come from? How did that all come together?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I, I got it at Wallston for, for seven years, and, and the owner there had had said let's do a fly fishing film. We never really had an idea but then then eventually there's this this woman named Mary and Mary used to come up to the lodge with her husband and uh husband passed away and the question was is Mary going to keep coming to the lodge what's what's going to happen and she's like you know what I'm I'm going to keep coming up without without the guys I'm going to come up and I'm going to learn how to fly fish. So this 7-year-old widow learned how to fly fish and uh, Kind of just the the film tells the story of what fly fishing means to her family and her brother, and kind of how it was just the common thread that bound them all together. So it was, uh, I felt very connected because I'd actually guided them years previously, and then I got to come back and film it. So it was like kind of the best of both worlds there.
2: It came together really well. It was it was it was a, it was a great storyline, great narrative and and also just fun to watch with with the big pike and the fishing as, as heartwarming as that is, we actually brought you here to do the opposite, right? That film was all about giving, (laughs) giving credit to someone who you guided and, and, and making them the center of a positive story. Uh, but you know, this is smooth moves. So we brought you here to tell a a different kind of story about your days of guiding. So we're curious, what what do you got for us, man?
1: Oh man, I, I have like way too many that kind of focus on, focus on me making really dumb moves and maybe we'll save those for a different time, but (laughs) 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 one, one story that sticks out of we're at this remote fly-in uh, pike lake, and we were just crushing the pike. We pulled into this one cove, and I think we probably got, I don't know, 20, 25 pike out of this one cove. And, and this, this guest is like, hey, man, can, can I unhook the fish? And it's like a pretty strict policy. It's like the guy touches the fish. No, you're not touching the fish. And, <laughs> and this guy just kept hammering me. He's like, Jay, please, just I'm fine. Like they're catching double headers, and he thought he was doing me a favor, and I keep telling him no. And finally, I'm like, okay, okay, unhook the fish. The first fish he touches does a thrash, and he's got treble hooks in his hand. Oh. And I'm just oh. like, you know? And there I am, 18 years old, and I'm trying to calm down this 45-year-old man, and it's just like, just a disaster. So, I mean, you grab you grab the hook, and luckily, it's it's barbless hooks up at Wallston. And, you know, the key is to count to three, but you pull on the count of two, so he's not expecting it. and Oh, yeah. He got the hook out, but... That was a pretty good lesson, a pretty good lesson for him that I think he learned pretty quickly. The, the guide knows best, you know, <laughs> even, even if he is half your age.
2: What well, what about for you? I mean, uh, he got a lesson there, but did you, as an 18 year old, did you decide then there, like, I'm never letting client touch a fish ever again?
1: It's tough because you tell, you tell yourself that's never going to happen again. And then you let someone do it and, and they lose your trust instantly when they, you know, drop a fish or get hooked or, or whatever that might be. But yeah, pike pike are kind of squirrely. It's oh, and it's yeah. not the big ones, it's the small ones that you have to watch out for. Oh, it's hell the ones yeah. that are like, yeah, they're the ones that just start snaking in your hands. And oh
2: my my last follow-up question is is how did uh how did that particular client respond to the hook removal? Was it like a full-on fall apart meltdown, or did he did he take it pretty solid?
1: He was good about it. He he went straight back to fishing, but uh I had another guest who put a hook into his buddy's head, into the back of the head when we were pike fishing. And this was one of my least favorite guests and probably seven years of guiding. And he just so happened to be the guy that hooked the other guy in the head. And it was funny because the guy that put the hook that snagged his friend in the head, he was the one that freaked out more than actually the guy that got hooked. The guy that got hooked was calm about it, just holding his head. And the guy that hooked him was just losing his mind. And the, ha- the hook went through his hat into the back of his head and same situation had to, had to rip it out of his head. But yeah you got to be prepared for those things and
3: did the guy apologize after you told him not to unhook the fish did he say like i'm sorry i i did that i should have listened to you
1: yeah but i think the thing is like it it ended it ended fine we pulled the hook out i think if we were calling for an emergency plane to come in and pull us out it might be a different situation but for him it was just like oh i'm gonna go back to fishing and then you know it is what it is
3: So I have never had to go to the hospital to get a hook removed, but probably the the closest call I ever had, I took a clouser to the face years ago, and the hook, it hit me just right, and the hook actually ended up up under my sunglasses. Uh. Like, like it was buried right below my eye, right? And what made this one also particularly memorable, while I will not name names, Just suffice it to say, a very well-known fly caster put it there. And I felt way worse for him than myself. Like, we got that hook out, no problem, right? But it totally ruined the rest of the float for him, and I had to keep pleading with him the entire— it happened, like, first mile of a 10-mile float, right? And I just had to keep pleading with him, like, dude, please snap out of it. Like, this was not that big a deal— this shit happens. It's it's okay, but it like ruined him for the rest of the day.
2: And we can't say this person's name for a lot no, of reasons. But I, I am lucky enough to know who it is. And I can, I can understand why it was in his head, because it's sort of like his whole identity is being really good. At <laughs> sort of. Casting flies.
3: I will just say this. We were forced by water conditions to use really heavy sink tips that day, which yeah. he doesn't do. Like he right. preferred to never do that. So that was also part of it.
2: There are there are all kinds of good reasons, but still, like I understand why he was uncomfortable. Yes, that by the for the record that that whole thing is my nightmare, and that is why I wear the wraparound eye shield, like yes. sucked tight to my face sunglasses all the time. Yep. I, like, I can I can handle a scar or two. I can handle some blood. I I cannot regrow an eyeball. Yeah, I i, can't I'd, I Prefer that. to
3: have both of those. So. Yeah,
2: those are <laughs> those are kind <laughs> of important, and and hopefully neither of us will pick up any new scars or puncture a cornea in the heat of this week's battle of wits. But you never know. It's time for Fish News.
3: Fish News!
0: That escalated quickly.
3: So I don't really have much housekeeping this week, but I would just like to say thank you to everyone that wrote in to support my claim that dolphins are actually shitty animals. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No. uh -uh. Uh-uh. No. You you said hating dolphins was like hating puppies. Well, I think a a lot of people hate puppies, my friend.
2: I I, I learned. I actually, I found this whole exercise very instructive. And and the main thing I learned is that like at least 25% of our audience is made up of sadists. So (laughs) um, I'm afraid of most of you. (laughs) <laughs> and go on with your your puppy and dolphin
3: killing, whatever. Not, yeah, I mean the masses have spoken though, and dolphins are evil. Uh, we do we even got an email with a subject line "Not puppies." That like, yeah, was, we did. I don't. I don't know. Do, do I smell a <laughs> dolphins bench shirt down the road? Perhaps I do. I, I will not know. sign off on that. <laughs> I, I will not sign off on that. But I'll sign off on it twice. Um, also, thanks to everyone, and I do mean everyone on planet Earth, I think, for sending me the Tuggy sandbox that was turned into a go kart. Not um, just you,
2: I I got that one about eighty seven thousand <laughs> times.
3: I was like, uh, that was neat, and I appreciate you all of you. You know, so got it. Message received. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's all. That's all I got. So let's we'll get newsy here. Remember, uh, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know what stories the other guy is bringing to the table. And at the end our audio engineer Phil will declare a winner and can I just say Phil's judgment is my favorite part of my own entire show like it might Absolutely. It, it might be the best part of this show and it's it's, <laughs> it's getting out of the con- most professional part it, of the show it, 100% it's getting out of control but in like the best possible way and yes. every week so every week, Miles and I get to listen to the show before it gets posted. And I anticipate Phil's bit like a child like hovering at the top of the staircase on Christmas morning. What's, <laughs> What's at the bottom do? of the staircase? Is he, he going to die this you, week? I don't, yeah. It's just, ah, I love it so much. Anyway, it is your lead off this week for, yes, for it the is. news. So hit me.
2: All right. This first one is, is really, mm, it's a core story for me. Uh, mm. And I'll just start it off by saying, I think, Public access to fishing spots is essential to American fishing. I think Pretty it is much. at the core of American fishing. Have to agree. And and because of that, I I consider the public trust doctrine, which has shaped water access laws since before the US was a country, to be one of the great principles of the American ethos. In in most cases, we the people are allowed to access and utilize our rivers, lakes and oceans, a right and privilege that much of the world just doesn't enjoy. They just don't have it. Yeah. And all of that is a big part of the reason we have such a vibrant and diverse fishing culture in this country.
3: Mm -hmm. But
2: that access is not codified in federal law. The rules differ between states. So state legislatures and judiciaries have discretion in how they interpret and apply the public trust doctrine, which has led to the erosion of fishing access in some places. One of the major points of divergence affects access to rivers and streams. Without going way off into the weeds, uh, a lot of this hinges on how states define a navigable body of water and how they recognize historic easements. Some states, like Montana, have a broad definition of navigability inscribed in the state constitution. If a log could have been floated down a river at the time of statehood in, in Montana, it's yeah. therefore navigable. Well, I know all water about way. this. I yeah. can't wait. Yeah. So long as you can find a, a parcel of public land that abuts the river, you can legally walk and fish without trespassing if you stay between the traditional high water marks. Other states, though, like Wyoming and Colorado and a bunch of other ones, have, have a different, narrower interpretation of navigability in those states. Most stream beds can be privately owned, meaning that many rivers and streams can essentially be shut off from the public. Uh, in, in, In yet still other states, the specifics of who has the right to fish where remains unsettled, which has led to fights over access all over the West in recent decades. Landowners, some of them very wealthy individuals and often from out of state, have long been trying to undermine the legality of the Montana stream access law. Uh, one particular individual, Jim Cox Kennedy, who owns a very large vacation home on the Ruby River, clogs the courts with like a near constant stream of anti-access lawsuits, mm. and those lawsuits work their way up the chain, and so far have been consistently rebuffed, sometimes by the state Supreme Court. Kennedy even unsuccessfully challenged the legality of the Montana state constitution at the U.S. Supreme Court a few years back, and, and failed. All in an effort to keep the unwashed masses off a stretch of river he likes to consider his own. Thankfully, he and others like him, (coughs) washed up rocker Huey Lewis, have remained (laughs) unsuccessful here in Montana. But just south of here in Utah, the fight has been even more pitched. Up until a few decades ago, most Utah rivers were treated as public resources. People fished them as they wanted, and, and most farmers and ranchers and landowners allowed that to happen So long as everyone remained like a bunch of Fonzies and stayed cool. Mm -hmm. But in the 90s, that all started to change as more and more folks wanted to experience Utah's exceptional fisheries. And those fisheries began to represent profit and value. Landowners started shutting off access to rivers and streams and telling anglers they couldn't fish the places they'd been going their entire lives. Courts began to see a consistent parade of cases to determine who had the right to what. In 2008, the Utah Supreme Court recognized public easement to streams, essentially adopting a similar perspective as Montana. Two years later, in 2010, the Utah State Legislature passed a bill declaring stream and riverbeds private property. That bill privatized 42% of the total fishable rivers and streams in the state overnight. Hmm. Floaters, boaters, and anglers came together to create the Utah Stream Access Coalition, and lawyers have been going at it ever since. The coalition focused their efforts on two rivers, the Weber and the Provo, hoping to establish precedents that might pave the way to open up more rivers and streams. On the Weber, they successfully showed the river had been used to transport goods at the time of statehood, and therefore definitively met the federal definition of navigable. On the Provo, they took a different tack, bringing a lawsuit against an exclusive resort on the Upper River and arguing that Utahns customarily accessed those waters prior to statehood. And that use represented a historic easement. In 2015, a district court judge sided with the Stream Access Coalition. And that was heralded as a huge win for water access all over the state. But on appeal, the Utah State Supreme Court remanded that case back down to district court. And in a bizarre and unnerving twist, the very same judge who previously ruled in favor of access did a complete 180. A few weeks ago, that judge declared, quote, public use of non-navigable riverbeds and streambeds in the territory between 1851 and 1869 could not create an easement dictated by the law in the late 19th century. And with those words, wow. Utah's once again lost the right to fish thousands of acres of water. The decision was a, a crushing blow to stream access, not just on the Provo, but across the state. Because if the court had upheld that historic use created an easement, most of the state's rivers and stream beds would have to be defined as public. And that, that yeah. House bill that got passed in 2010 would be essentially null and void. It just made it easier for everybody to privatize. It, it all went back to private, essentially. And, and I'm going to stop being even mildly journalistic now. Not that I was really doing a great job before. And I'm just going to go straight op-ed because this is horseshit. I'm unabashedly pro-access. I, I admit it. That's, that's yeah. my bias. I've written about and advocated for maintaining or expanding water access for a lot of my career. The fact that wealthy individuals are able to manipulate courts and legislatures in order to create legal loopholes that prevent the American people from recreating on rivers and streams it infuriates me. It really does. And I am not opposed to private property rights. I just think they need to have reasonable limitations for the greater good. I I get it. I I understand that anglers can sometimes be shitty stewards of the resource. And I sympathize with landowners that have to deal with disrespectful people fishing on their property and leaving trash or otherwise acting like entitled jerk-offs. That behavior is also unacceptable. We all have a responsibility to conduct ourselves with the utmost care and tact when we're fishing public water, especially when those waters cross private property. But shutting down access to 40% of a state's flowing fisheries to appease the wealthy class is not an appropriate response to bad behavior by a minority of the fishing public. That's a wholesale taking of public rights and resources. The fact that the same judge would completely reverse himself in the same case 6 years later strikes me as deeply shady and yeah. and I think this is just a depressing yeah. outcome for the entire state of Utah and all of us American people in general I'm I'm very pissed off about this
3: Yeah it sounds like some kind of kickback there I hate to say it like some somebody greased a pocket on that one Um dude I'm I'm fully on your side right and this is this is a travesty though like you know you brought up navigable waterways, things like that. I, I think part of the problem and and this does not justify measures this drastic. but I, I've even had some some encounters and run-ins on on private water. and I think the the problem is that so many people think they know what the rules are, but they don't actually have any idea and just sort of do what they want without paying attention. So, like navigable waterway, I used to belong to a trout club here years ago. Um, which I don't anymore, but that's neither here nor there. And you'd have people <laughs> sneak in all the time. Like You'd see somebody trespass or, or float through on a kayak and fish, and they would get all mouthy because they're like, well, you can't. This is, na- this is a navigable waterway. I'm like, no, it's not. This is a creek that's 30 feet across in New Jersey. Same thing with the high water marks. I mean, if you are responsible and you understand where you can be, that's fine. But I mean, so many people have that wrong. I've heard people say that here, like, well, below the high water mark, there's no. Pro- Actually, you're wrong. That's not the, the the law here. So, does that make sense? What I'm saying, like, I think Absolutely. a lot of this stems too from people just assuming they know what's allowed when it's not, and and just doing their own thing. Well, and and to your point, the the fact that these
2: laws are piecemeal and they're different in every state, and in some states they're not even settled. Like Mm -hmm. I did a whole, I worked on a very big report about this some years ago and really dug deep into state by state. And there are multiple states that really don't even know what their definition of navigability is. Yeah. Right. And this is a real problem for exactly what you're talking about because no one really knows. Right. Like, and, and if you're, maybe you are familiar with the law in your state, if you cross a border, it's totally different. And this is hard for me because I do, in in many cases, believe in state autonomy and states' rights. But I feel like this is a case where we need to standardize this.
3: Yeah, it's got to be a unified system. Yeah.
2: The problem is that if it gets standardized in the wrong way, then I'm going to be extra pissed. And (laughs) and I don't want that to happen. So really what I want is for them to standardize it according to my definition of how it should go. And that's probably not going to happen.
3: No, but navigable gets me all the time, dude. I've heard so many people say, this is navigable. Like, do you even know what that means? Well, it's different. Navigable in Montana is not navigable in New Jersey. No, you're right. But it just rolls off the tongue like, well, this is absolutely navigable water we're in right now. I'm like, you you have no idea what you're talking about most (laughs) of the time. (laughs) <laughs> if if i don't you just know heard that and i pay attention then, yeah that's what you're supposed to say i can be here because this is navigable water like how do you know I that doesn't mean you have to it. be able to take a battleship up it like that <laughs> might be the definition can i right. dock a battleship here you know yeah um but yeah dude i mean that's that's absolutely brutal uh and i'm, I'm trying to think of a smooth transition and i don't i don't really have one other than this story is kind of kind of brutal too i guess that's that's weak but mm. i'm gonna i'm gonna roll on uh, so it is late summer, right? Which means the great white sharks are frolicking close to the shore in the northeast. The browns and black tips and hammerheads, they're doing their thing uh, inshore in the mid-Atlantic. And of course, as always, there are bulls just waiting for the perfect tourist to munch in Florida. But none of those species has made a move, at least not a newsworthy one recently. So if you're craving a harrowing tail rife with blood in the water, <laughs> I suggest you get off the coast and let's head over to Lake St. Clair. So- Per the story from Canada's CBC News, the Alex Kintner Award this week goes to Matt Gervais. Gervais lives in Windsor, Ontario, which is just across the river from Detroit, um, and he's a pretty accomplished triathlete. So on August 13th, he plunged into Lake St. Clair with a friend of his to make a routine three-kilometer swim for the fitness and the health. That's, that's why I assume that's why people that's, do these that's things. That's why you do yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he'd only been in the water for about five minutes when something latched on to his hand. So Gervais said, your mind goes immediately to Shark, but I still had my wits about me to know that was unlikely. So it's actually more like impossible because to get there, a shark would have to <laughs> Yeah, not going to not sw- gonna happen. swim up the St. Lawrence River, circumvent Niagara Falls via the <laughs> Welland Canal and so on and so forth. And look, I, I don't even actually bring that up to, to make fun of the guy's statement, but no. just to explain, right, like what a shark would have to go through theoretically, because there have been hazy reports for decades of bull sharks way up the Mississippi River and possibly oh, yeah. in the Ohio River. Um, but getting to St. Clair would have been extremely difficult, like not happening. So, yeah, you probably guessed it by now. We have another musky attack. Yay. From, yeah. I not love musky attacks. I love them too. So glad
2: you did this one.
3: <laughs> so, from the piece, uh, looking at the fish through the water, he could see its teeth gripping three of his fingers and part of his hand. Gervais says it was over quickly. He managed to free himself after about five seconds, but his hand was covered in blood and badly injured. Swimming on his back with his injured hand in the air, he and his friend made it to the shore, approximately 45 meters, to the break wall of a home on Riverside Drive. They climbed a steel ladder to reach the backyard where the homeowner helped clean the wound. So Gervais ended up with 13 stitches in his hand, and and no doubt it's a nasty bright, right? Like it's not the most gruesome thing that I've ever seen, but it's it's ugly enough. Like he, t- he took a good good it's hit. It's the there.
2: worst musky bite I've ever seen.
3: Yeah, yeah. Like he, he there, there was some there was some tissue damage there yeah. for sure.
2: uh So stitches. here's
3: yeah, there's stitches. But yes. So here's my cynical takeaway. Right? You could not ask for a better bolstering advertisement for Saint Clair musky fishing because <laughs> let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. Saint Clair kind of sort of has a reputation as the place to go for muskies. When you don't want to work too hard. And there's, I mean, there are musky dudes right now who are fuming at that statement, and I understand. But like it, it's it's kind of true. Like I'm extremely musky challenged, right? You know this. Lots of people know this. I talk about it often. And time and time again, over and over and over, I hear, just go to St. Clair, man. Just go to St. Clair. Get it and done. Head on up to St. Yep. Clair. Get it done, right? Because the place is filthy with them. Almost painting it as the place to go if you're musky challenged like me. Now, again, I'm not saying that there aren't St. Clair guys that that fish seriously and put in their time. There are. I know some of them, but I also know a shitload of people that took their first, second, third, and like eighth muskies there in the same day, and it's it's often while while trolling. Yeah. Um, so it's it's undeniable that St. Clair's musky population is huge, and st- stories like this. I don't know. They can easily make you think like, "Well, shit, they'll just eat anything that that hits the water." You know, musky so aggressive they attack your trolling motor. Little cherry garlic hot dog, and it's on. So you know, I'm sorry, Saint Clair Sharpies, I get it, but that that is the that is the reputation that lake has.
2: It's true, and and this doesn't dispel any of that. And all the thing, I agree with everything you say, but the piece that I took away from this, did you read the article about this in the Windsor Star?
3: Yeah, the one that like made muskie sound super aggro.
2: It might be. It's one of the worst pieces of fish journalism I've seen in a very long <laughs> That's time. That's why I went I with just, this one. I just want to hit some high points for everyone out there just because, to me, this is so ridiculous. Here's a line. Uh, local triathlete and endurance sports coach is still recovering after his right hand was chomped by a hungry musk I know. Now, yeah, it's- let's take a minute and and think about that statement. <laughs> What kind of an idiot do you have to be to think the muskie was attempting to eat a full-grown human? There was no attempt to consume. It wasn't hungry. It was pissed off. Let's, like, yeah. basic, basic understanding here.
3: Dude, you dive in from shore. I bet you he swam out on top of a freaking giant weed bed. Yes. Right? Like, I guarantee yeah. it was full of milfoil or spatter dock or whatever, and that's just where the muskie lives, and you interrupted it. And,
2: and here's a really... Really excellent piece of this is what this is this is a journalist who just did their research. The piece says, quote, Muskies in Ontario can grow up to 40 inches in length mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. weigh up to 23 pounds. I know. I saw that. Followed by follow <laughs> the next paragraph. The biggest muskie caught in Ontario on record weighed in at a whopping 65 pounds. Do you not see, like, you? Be, they're right next to each other on the page. Do you not see
3: how wrong that is? If they only grew up to forty inches, nobody <laughs> would be musky fishing in Ontario. <laughs> People would be so, like, we should go elsewhere.
2: I mean, this is this is like journalism 101 oh yeah dude really. I, I i saw I hope that. this was written by a bot i don't i do uh, not understand <laughs> how this got through any editor uh it just infuriated me
3: i'm glad you pulled some of this in because you're spot on with like four, 40 inches is like the bare minimum for me to feel like i actually yeah. caught a muskie. they grow up to 40 inches do they now that's my fear with fly fishing for muskies because again i haven't achieved that yet but also it has to be i've put 42 inches on it if it's under that then i still don't mm-hmm. feel like i don't want to i can't catch a little tweezer and be like did it i'm done Accomplish that like it's got to be at least a real one and i'd put it a couple inches over 40 to consider that
2: so well the your bar just keeps getting higher which is going to make this a, a more and more difficult thing to achieve and bef- if you're going to do it at all you you have to try and i know for well a fact i was you, just going to say step 1 would be time.
0: step
3: 1 would be going to do it so you know
0: Into today, because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids.
2: because there were some bad ones with that. I'm going to I'm going to bring up my personal favorite headline of the week. Mm. And and this one comes to us from livescience.com and it, it was sent by listener Derek Arneson. So thanks Derek. The headline reads: Sexually frustrated sea snakes mistake scuba divers for potential mates. <laughs> I love that you're, title. You're
3: glad I took Musky, I'm glad you took this one. I <laughs> I debated it. I love that
2: title because it It actually really does sum up the entire article pretty damn well, but as we know, I'm not into the whole brevity thing, so I'm going to give a little more context and detail. A recently published study analyzed 158 interactions between olive sea snakes and scuba divers near the Great Barrier Reef. These interactions went something like this. A diver would be cruising along underwater, checking out the corals and fishes and whatnot, and then all of a sudden a sea snake would appear, coiling itself around the diver's fins and repeatedly licking the water all around the diver. When the diver (laughs) tried to relocate away from the coiling, licking sea reptile, the snake would persistently pursue. While these incidents never resulted in any bites or injuries, they were consistent enough to be curious. Hence the study. And that study found that the majority of those interactions took place during sea snake mating season, which suggested a correlation between sea snake sexy time and diver harassment.
3: Man, they are turned up. They are really turned up. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> when a male sea snake wants to mate, he performs courtship rituals, like winding his body around a female snake. If she flees, which is apparently a common response from female sea snakes, the male chases her. Which and all that explains the, the coiling around diver's fins and, and following them when they try to leave. But here's what I don't get. Why divers, right? Are sea snakes actually mistaking human divers? Or are they just like snakes? a frat boy like, that'll just go at anything? Yeah. <laughs> that seems implausible. That seems implausible. But apparently that is what's going on for a couple reasons. One, sea snakes have very poor eyesight. They so only think, recently uh, yeah. evolved, yeah. right? They're, they're, they're a recent evolution from land snakes. And and so their hardware that they have is better adapted to out of the water, and they just don't see all that well under there. But like you were hinting at, that's only part of the answer. It, it seems this is also uh, an, an act of, shall we say, desperation. The study's mm. lead author, Rick Schein, <laughs> said, it's clear that most approaches to divers were by males who had lost contact with the females they were pursuing. They frantically search for a female if they lose touch with her. So you've got all these very excited and spurned snakes that are searching around everywhere for anything that might give them the time of day. And since Mm. they can't see very well, they're just trying out whatever moves and then using their tongues to try and identify the object That they're rubbing up against another author of the study, Tim Lynch wrote that is likely why tongue flicking was such a commonly observed behavior during interactions with divers. They can only really confirm that you were not a female snake by licking you. And the whole thing, we can just admit that whole thing sounds creepy.
3: You know what, though? Very quickly, I just watched a great documentary on Woodstock 99, and they pretty much said the same thing about all the dudes there. Yeah, like it was no, the exact I mean, same set. The, the reason
2: this works is because there are parallels <laughs> that we can all draw to humanity, let's, if we're being honest. I, I think I think it, a, a, a couple things to hit. Olive sea snakes are venomous, and they can be deadly to humans, but I, I think it's important to reiterate there have been zero cases where a snake has bitten a diver while they're just swimming along. The snakes are very curious and pretty tame underwater. The only time people get bit by sea snakes is when they're doing something stupid, like trying to handle them. Right. Don't do that. Yeah. So takeaway here, if you find yourself you know, in this predicament, you're diving in the Great Barrier Reef, just I was ignore. I to say you'll
3: never you'll never find yourself in this predicament in the United nope, States of America. nope. nope. You so happen just, to be there, so but if,
2: if you if you're <laughs> there, just just ignore the snake humping your leg and carry on with your dive. He will leave you alone once he tastes you.
3: <laughs> just don't look at it and make eye contact. It will go
2: away. Just, don't, don't don't flee. He'll he will taste you eventually, and then he'll lose interest. <laughs> oh my
3: god. <laughs> I don't, I don't even have any good follow-up on this. I feel like I've said everything I needed to say already. Wow. That was a very me story. I feel like, but, but I'm, I'm I'm glad you grabbed that. Uh, I don't think we've done a sea snake anything on this show since I don't think so either. It. Yeah. So how appropriate. And I actually, believe it or not, I have a, a a transition, a better one than the last one. We'll go from the Great Barrier Reef. How about to a reef in Lake Erie? We'll take hmm. it back to the Great Lakes. There are no sea snakes there, although, you know, lampreys. Yeah, um yeah. yeah. But this is actually an an uplifting one, very uplifting news for Lake Erie, Uh, and a bunch of you fine listeners forwarded this along, and I thank you. Uh, This comes from WGRZ News, and according to this story, natural lake trout reproduction has been observed in Lake Erie for the first time in 60 years, which is kind of a big deal, okay? yeah. So these fry were first found by the New York DEC this spring. And uh, they actually trapped them on an offshore reef. They were out there looking for suitable lake trout spawning habitats, set some traps, and they they caught these fry. So they took some, they did some genetic testing, and just recently confirmed that they are 100% in fact lake trout fry. So historically, lakers were the top predator in Lake Erie, but commercial fishing started for them, I, I mean like 1700s. Way yeah. back, right? Doing Way it for back. a long time. And by 1965, they were pretty much done. There were no more lake trout in Lake Erie. They they pretty much got wiped. Now, population restoration efforts have been going on for a long time, right? And back in the early 80s, um, they, they really started, started bearing down on it. But by then... Those efforts faced a lot of new challenges, right? By, by then, there was pollution in Lake Erie. The water wasn't as clean as it was in the 1700s. Um, you had those sea lampreys, which became a big deal. Uh, and they particularly loved to latch on and suck the life out of a slow-moving, kind of lazy lake trout. Um, but there have been all <laughs> kinds of initiatives happening over the last few decades to bring back these fish. So this recent finding is sort of like the big win that various groups have been waiting for for a really long time. Yeah. So uh, here's a quote from DEC Commissioner Basil Sagos, and he said this right after the DEC confirmed that those were lake trout fry. He said, today marks a key milestone in the restoration of lake trout in Lake Erie after six decades of significant investments to improve water quality and habitat and promote sound fisheries management. This phenomenal Great Lakes story of recovery is a testament to the perseverance of the researchers and biologists from DEC and partner agencies who've worked tirelessly to help restore this fishery. So we both love lake trout. We've talked about it. This I know. I'm a big I'm a big lake trout fan. I believe you are too. Yeah. Um and the one thing they don't talk about in this story is the incredibly stark difference in lake trout populations within a very short span of about 7 miles. So Lake Erie flows into Lake Ontario, right? Mm-hmm. and it does that via the niagara river and while the niagara river isn't very long you've kind of got that whole niagara falls thing like right there in the middle of it it's quite the I've obstruction yeah. it's quite the obstruction to 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 fish movement right but from the falls to the mouth of that river and throughout all of lake ontario which is just like right there it's like a stone's throw away from erie the laker population is crazy like i've fished it um, a bunch, and the number of fish in Ontario in that river is just insane. But what really struck me is that I've spent a whole lot of time on Erie, just above Niagara Falls, um, all over the place, really, and it never dawned on me until I read this that I've never caught a lake trout there, right? Because they're they're pretty aggressive fish, right? So if you're on the lower Niagara or Ontario, it's like yeah, you're targeting salmon, but you're going to get some Lakers. You know what I mean? Like you're after mm-hmm. small mouths, but some Lakers throughout the day are probably going to eat that tube. You know, you're pinning steelhead, you're catching Lakers. And I've thrown a lot of musky lures and drug tubes deep and trolled crawler harnesses and ripped jerk baits all over Lake Erie. And this story made me realize, like, wow, I have never had a bycatch Laker there doing any of that. So as a big fan of lake trout, this is this is really great news. And I hope this keeps trending in, in the right direction here.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I I saw this news, and I'm really glad you picked it up because it felt like you know that's you, you know more about those fisheries than i do you've fished them a lot yeah. more than i have yeah and but i didn't make the i didn't think about that parallel between ontario and erie and the difference in those fisheries because again i just don't know them that well
3: you take a little short highway drive there's no lake trout and like just go right down the road and it's filthy with them but i wonder if
2: you know we, as we all know lake erie was a biological dead zone in the 70s yeah. and that never happened to the same extent in Ontario. And I wonder if that's the reason for the difference in the lake trout population. I don't know, but it seems like it might be likely that one, you know, we all know about Lake Erie in the seventies. Lake Erie still holds that connotation for some people like, Oh, you can't fish there. There's no fish. There are now, but there didn't used to be like 50 years ago. There weren't any.
3: The, the thing you remember though, is even when Erie's water was real bad, it all ends up in Lake Ontario. It flows yeah, through it Lake Ontario. So I mean I know there's been different efforts and and programs to keep the lake trout healthy on Ontario but it is it is stark and they all run the Niagara River to spawn by the thousands so I right. th- there's there's natural reproduction there. So I mean I don't I don't think we have the answer it's just no. you know you, you no, talk no, about Lake Ontario than us needs,
2: to, <laughs> needs to dig in on this.
3: <laughs> you you talk about Lake on uh, Lake Erie and Ontario as these separate things but if you know if you really pay attention Dude, they're like right there. Like it's like right. millimeters on a map that separates right. them. Yeah. So
2: no, I I see it. I see it. I just I also know them to be very different lake trout fisheries, and I don't know why. So yeah, smart people. So explain this. I mean,
3: right right now, yeah, yeah. Right now, it's just fry. I'm sure those uh, super aggro agri- agri- walleye will will kill their share <laughs> of them, and they'll have to they'll have to deal with that. But um, you know, this could be the road back to uh serious trophy laker fishing on Lake Erie. Which I would not be sad about. Uh, we'll see what we'll see what Phil was sad about or happy about. See who wins. And then after that, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do a tackle hacks and, and do a super deep dive on uh, hook removal, which we've been hinting at this whole time. We're gonna get down to the nitty gritty to make sure you can uh, pop some of those barbs out your uncle.
1: All right, the for the, uh, for the pit heads.
3: Get off my river. What did you say? My river. Get off my river. It's mine. You can tell because I spelled my name out with pebbles on the bank there. It says Huey Lewis's River. No trespassing. And and you can see there's a crudely designed skull and crossbones there on, on the bottom. So you know I mean business. Also, Miles is the winner.
2: That's the power of love. I'm getting hacked. coming from inside the city. Like the planet! The first time I ever had to perform a serious hook removal was my first season guiding in Alaska. We were fishing for sockeye salmon, and one of the clients snagged a fish right in the flank. When the angry 10-pound buck took off upstream, the 2 ot short-shanked wide-gap egg hook popped out of its side and came flying right back at my client's face. He took it smack in the middle of the soft, rubbery flesh of his upper lip. I turned to the other guy and asked, Did you pinch his barb? Nope, he responded. You? Nope. Shit. I pulled a spool of the heaviest monofilament that I had in my boat bag and cut off a section. I told the client to relax, that this would be relatively painless and that. He had nothing to worry about. I didn't tell him that I had never actually done this before because I figured he was already freaked out enough. Why pile up? As I prepared to remove the hook in the way that I had heard was supposed to work, I noticed that the client's legs were starting to buckle, so I suggested that he sit down while I performed the procedure. He did. I slipped a line around the hook, placed my finger where I thought it was supposed to go, and yanked. Hard. To my complete surprise, the hook came flying out clean. It was as though the lie I'd told the client had turned into truth, and suddenly I had the confidence of a guide who had seen this work dozens of times before. As the hook came free, the client went into shock. His eyes rolled back into his head and he started convulsing. The rest of the group, which consisted of his brothers and father, huddled in a tight circle around the client to prevent him from falling or hurting himself. After a few seconds of shuddering and sputtering, the man's eyes popped open. He looked around the tight ring of familiar faces looming over him and asked, Who's calling the play? From that day on, I was a complete believer in the mono loop hook removal method, and I have since used it to remove many hooks from many people, myself included. The idea is to use a section of strong line to back the hook and the barb out of the same hole that they went into. Here's how it works. First, you need heavy monofilament or fluorocarbon, at least 40 pound test. I do not recommend using braid for this. Cut at least a two foot section of that heavy mono and tie a strong loop knot in one end. I personally like the perfection loop, but you can use any loop knot so long as it does not slip under tension then do your best to isolate the hook cut the hook or lure off the fishing line it's attached to if the hook is on a lure cut the split ring if you can and get the lure out of the way of the hook if that's not possible tie a very large loop knot so that you can work it all the way over the lure you want to get that loop of heavy mono as far down the bend of the hook as possible. You want to get it right up where the hook enters the skin. Once you've worked that loop of mono down the shank of the hook, all the way to the skin, you're ready for the critical part. Stay calm and keep the person with the hook in them calm if you can. Like, remember, it's only a hook. I mean, yeah, it's painful, but no one's going to die. So just keep that in mind. Wind the tag end of the heavy mono around your dominant hand enough times that it won't slip no matter how hard you pull. Place the index finger of your other hand on the eye of the hook and hold it steady. This is crucial. Don't move that finger. Don't flinch. Don't let that hook shank pull up or bad things will happen. Tell the person, With the hook stuck in them, that you're going to count to three. After you count to one, yank as hard as humanly possible on that mono in the opposite direction that the hook entered the skin. Couple things here. Always try to pull when the person isn't expecting it to keep them from flinching. Do not give a timid pull. You have to yank with everything you've got and you have to pop that barb out on the first try. Make sure. That you keep your finger on the eye of the hook to prevent the shank from lifting, or you'll bury the hook point deeper instead of backing it out. This method, it's not difficult and it's not complicated. I think the most important thing to making this work is confidence. If you pull hard enough and keep that shaft from rising up, the hook will come out and it will be surprisingly painless. You can then bask in the praise and glory when the barb leaves flesh and you've saved the fishing day. There are a few caveats that I should add. First, don't try this if the hook is someplace critical, like an eyeball, or a vein, or a testicle, or if the hook looks like it's wrapped around a tendon or embedded in a bone. Be smart and recognize when something is best left to a physician. Second, while this works on pretty large hooks, there is a limit to the size barb I will try to extract myself. The biggest I've done, personally, is a four-aught, and I'm not sure I would go too much bigger than that. Taking a hook deep, it's just part of fishing. It's it's a rite of passage in some ways. If you fish long enough, you will bury one in yourself or someone else. You've, you've really only got two options. You can debarb all your hooks, and lose a lot of fish, or you can learn how to effectively remove barbed hooks from yourself and others
3: that is a totally legitimate way to take hooks out of people in a pinch right i 100% i will say however that i'm not sure just listening to a podcast segment makes anyone an expert on hook removal well, you know you don't you don't i thought
2: i did a good job you don't think that was a a, a sufficient like that that my description was not sufficient
3: uh, no, I, ju- I just think medical practices in general require more than just a radio edit. Like, like I don't want my doctor to tell me they've never actually performed this particular procedure. But, like, they heard a guy, heard a guy describe it once, you know? That's that fair. doesn't seem like, like like sufficient, like, preparation to me. I once ended up, right, true story, with a heavy gauge treble from a tuna popper in me, mm. like, like, in my side flab. Like I rubbed up against the rods that were in the the vertical holders on the center console uh-huh. right Oh and I did it while I was lunging to the to the to the uh, stern to grab a trolling rod that went off and I like rubbed up against it and it pinned me in place. Now uh. we're sixty we're 65 miles offshore, right And the buddies I was with had never done a line pull. They'd never had to take a hook out of anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the site of insertion, it was it was too far behind me. You know what I mean? Like I could yeah. reach around and feel it, but, but I couldn't you, turn around and see. You do it blind. Yeah. Because yeah, because I've done it to myself many oh, times. Oh yeah. Lots of times. But there was there was no way, right? And and they didn't feel that my description of of what to do was sufficient prep. <laughs> like I'm saying, like, no man, like, look, you <laughs> grab the flab and pull it tight, pull it as taut as possible, and you gotta go one, two, three, and rip it. And like they just were uncomfortable. Right, yeah. they didn't. They didn't know, so they're like, "I don't know. I don't feel right about this." Fair. Um, and and while I'm sure your little segment there was was more comprehensive than my yelling at them to just wrap the line around the hook and pull, I just still don't think it qualifies as a, a hook removal certification course. Um, <laughs> yeah, like at least watch a YouTube video or two, or better yet, I've heard that you can you can kind of sort of practice this on oranges. Oranges, like the fruit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like the skin of an orange is a little like human skin, kind of like how they practice. Yeah. They practice tattoos on pig skin, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Not the same elasticity, but similar density. So you can try putting a few hooks in oranges and practicing at least the basics of this process before you have to actually do it on a squirming, bleeding friend or family member. Hmm. All right, that that I I give you
2: that practice is a good idea. That sounds that seems sound. I will admit that the first time I ever. Did the line pull was on a real live human and I had ah. to pretend like <laughs> oh I've totally done this before don't worry uh and it worked but I it, it is it is uncomfortable I think starting with fruit might have been a better choice but yeah back to that what happened on the boat like did you just well, get were you just <laughs> stuck pinned to the console like what
3: how did that end no so I mean it was kind of it was kind of stupid they, they just they thought the line pull was a bad idea they refused to do it and they just felt better about pushing it through. Like, that's oh. what they knew. And because I couldn't do it to myself, oh. I just, I was like, well, either I'm going to have a hook in me all day or, I don't know, go to the hospital later. Like, I'm not, we're not going in. The bite is good. Or I'm just going to have to let him do it. And it was brutal. I mean, it was just brutal, dude, because it was in such a soft spot oh. of meat that like it took 20 tries for him to put enough force to finally pop the hook through but like we're 65 off. What choice do I have? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That is truly awful. Terrible. Uh,
2: I've never had to push one through or go to the hospital personally, and I hope none of our listeners will after listening to this episode either. So go back, re-listen to that tackle hack, watch some YouTube videos, do a few dry runs on poor innocent citrus. If you're wondering what kind of hook you should practice pulling out of the fruit bowl tonight while you re-watch B-side fishing... Joe has the perfect suggestion in this week's End of the Line.
3: Uh, Fishy, 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 fishy. Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. B10S. Some of you listening right now just went, yeah, man, you know it. Damn Skippy. And chances are, if you're one of those people that understands what others may interpret as a bingo calling or a secret launch code, you tie your own flies. To drill that down even further, I bet you tie your own streamers, specifically. Perhaps you're even a hashtag streamer junkie. I mean, I am, and I credit none other than Brian Wise of Fly Fishing the Ozarks, who has been on this show with fueling my early streamer junkiness. Back in the day, or like eight, ten years ago, something like that, it was Brian's tying videos on YouTube that opened my eyes to all sorts of streamer patterns I'd never heard or seen before. And he often tied them on Gamakatsu B10S hooks. So I ordered myself a pack in size 2, and by golly, I've just never looked back. Now, I understand there are plenty of great hook options out there. All the kids are digging on the X hooks nowadays. You've got your Daiichis and your fire holes and so on. And they, they all make fine products. But I just like the B10S better. And since it's never really been broke, I've never really found a reason to fix it. The B10 is classified by GAMI as a stinger hook, and while some may argue, I call it the best all-around big fly hook ever made. I buy size 2s in packs of 100, and without a doubt, I tie on that particular hook more than any other. B10s have a long shank, but not too long. The point also doesn't extend as far forward as it would on a traditional streamer hook. That point is also angled up, but not too much, just slightly closing the gap just a bit, making it easier, in my opinion, for fish with slightly smaller mouths to still get pinned on the larger flies you'd tie on this hook. These hooks just have, like, the perfect anatomy. And they're killers, of course, incorporated into a dungeon or a cheech leech, but their use extends far beyond meaty streamers. B10s are very strong, and they're also very light. Making them my go to for smallmouth poppers, master splitter mice, and anything else that needs to work on the surface. All Gamakatsus are corrosion resistant, so when I need a hook for a false albacore candy or schooly striper deceiver, guess what it is? It's B10S size 2. I even use them for bowfin flies, which is saying something because their mouth is hard enough to bend carbide steel, yet I've never had one bend out a B10. Truthfully, I might go as far as calling the B10S the greatest all-around hook, period, well beyond fly fishing. And because I kind of buy them in bulk, they kind of find their way into my conventional bags as well. They're actually my first choice for nose hooking a fluke or swimbait because that little bit of extra shank length creates, I guess what I'd call a sturdier pivot point, and to my eye, my plastics wag better than they do on a short shank. They're also great hooks for fishing delicate live baits like Peanut Bunker. And I've had Mahi Mahis up to 20 pounds do their damnedest to get loose after eating one of those Peanut Bunker, and they failed. Most importantly, no matter how you use this hook, you can count on it being razor sharp, and I can tell you from experience, those needle points don't really roll over. I've honed a few that have dulled, but only after multiple trips, multiple rounds of use, and like way too many connections with rocks and wood. Now, maybe I'm just biased, but I've used a lot of hooks, and I swear the B10S just grabs faster and more often, and when they go in, they go in buttery smooth. And I know this because I've driven about 10 of them through my thumb while packing bucktail on the shank without a packing tool. And I once had one buried in my heel for a solid 20 minutes before realizing it because it just went in so clean, I I didn't even feel it.
2: So that's all we have for you in this week's Angler EMT certification course. Remember to always say that you're going to count to three, but pull on one. Never flinch off the shank. Don't grab the pike when your guide tells you not to. And oranges (laughs) provide a perfectly acceptable stand-in for human flesh in a pinch, at least according to Joe.
3: Also, I'd say never trust a guy who eats the orange peel garnish out of his cocktail. Ooh, so, yeah. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> if you actually try that orange trick out or know of a better alternative to mimic uh, the human dermis, tell us about it. Send an email to bent at com.
2: Also, keep tagging the good stuff with the Jennered Angler and Bent podcast. And if we like
3: what we see, we send you good stuff. Yeah, you might get some stickers, but listen, please don't flood us with disgusting pictures of hooks stuck in bodies, because we already get plenty of those. It's pretty routine, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, we'd much rather see your cat, or perhaps a nice potted
0: plant.